It's something for nothing. The Rush fan cast, Jerry and Steve with you. Jerry, I think the third time is the charm. This is the third time we're recording this episode. Well, the intro, right? The first, the <laughs> third time we're recording the intro. Yeah, I was having some audio problems, but I think we've got them fixed finally. My speaking voice is one giant audio problem, so I, I hear you. <laughs> we've got a great episode today. This is an idea we both sort of hatched together, right? We loved our power windows and hold your fire redux episode so much that we thought it might be cool to have a guest on and talk about their favorite rush song for one episode right just an episode on one song we go a little deeper into why someone loves that particular song it's going to be great i have a feeling you could find us on twitter we are at rush fancast instagram find us at the rushcast email jerry the rushcast at gmail.com Lex did the bass intro and outro. You can guess what song it is. That's our topic for today. <laughs> Find us on your favorite podcast app. And Jared, hope you got an email to get us started. I do. This is from Tom. What's up, Tom? Congrats on your 150th episode. Well, thank you, Tom. That's nice. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It shows your love and commitment to the Rush community. A bit of my Rush history. It started in 1977 with hearing Closer to the Heart on local radio in Chicago. I joined Columbia House and got 2112 and a Farewell to Kings as part of my 10 albums for a buck. Happens every time. It might have been 10 albums for a penny, though. Wasn't it a penny? I think it was a penny. It was a bargain. I got 13 for a penny. That's what I got. Oh, boy. Maybe back then in 1977, it was a buck. 2112 and Cygnus X1 became the most played, and I was hooked. I had never heard anything like it and knew I just wanted to hear more. I totaled out by R40 in Chicago, my last show, at 40 live shows since my first on the Signals tour in 1982. I constantly played Rush in our apartment, but never got a liking from my wife until on the R30 tour when I took her on a three-show stint up the East Coast, Atlanta, Bristol, Virginia, and Philly. So three shows in four nights. She fell in love with them and became a great fan. A suggestion as a collector of Rush artworks, how about an episode on your top five Rush album covers. That's a great idea. I'd love to hear y'all's favorite. So why not grab a couple of guests and give it a go? Thank you always for sharing a part of yourselves every week and sharing your love of our favorite band. I started listening a couple of months ago and I've caught up within that time. Again, cheers. And I'll always keep my ears perked up for new episodes. So thanks, Tom. Awesome. Thank you, Tom. That's great. Two things that are great about that email. First of all, he just found us a couple of months ago and he's almost caught up already, which is amazing. It is amazing. I got a couple of tweets today from other listeners who did the same thing and we appreciate every single one of you. And the other cool thing is he made an episode suggestion, which we love to get from our listeners. You know, we get a lot of episode suggestions and when we do an episode, I, I try to remember to give that person some kind of credit. <laughs> But you, know, you and I come up with a lot of episodes and sometimes they just coincide with episodes that people have suggested. But I don't think we've discussed doing our favorite album covers. So that's a pretty good idea. So about 20 episodes from now when we do it and we forget to mention Tom, <laughs> we mentioned it now. Tom, thank you very much for that suggestion. <laughs> Today on the Rush Fancast, Jar, as I mentioned, we're going to do one of our listeners' favorite Rush songs. And our guest today is the host of a very unique and interesting podcast called Politics of Sound. He speaks to political figures 
to discuss their favorite albums and how that music has shaped them. He's also a teacher at the Royal College of Music in London, Ian Carnegie. Welcome to the Rush Fancast. Hey, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. How are you? We're great. We're great. We'd like to start out by asking our guests, Ian, their Rush origin story. When did you first hear Rush, and how did you become a fan? Well, the Rush thing for me, I was sent away to boarding school. Is that the right word, sent away? It sounds like going to prison or something. <laughs> but um, you, I went there when I was 13, and I didn't really know very much about Rush. So this would have been, gosh, I'm going to show how old I am, but it was sort of late 70s. And um, I remember going past all of these sort of older guys' studies or rooms, whatever they were, and Xanadu would be blasting out. I remember thinking, oh, that's really amazing. And particularly that moment when the whole band comes in, I think it's a favorite for everybody, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Thinking, this is great. And then 1980 came and then moving pictures and uh, I got into that. And then they sort of passed me by a little bit for a bit. And then, although some of those albums that came in the interim during the time I picked them up again, which was mid to late 80s, I think are some of my favorites. And then uh, I went and I got my first car and uh, I then went and got, you know, the, the Red Album, which is uh, Hold Your Fire. And uh, I was a big fan of the sort of Peter Collins production techniques. You know, he'd done a lot of nice work in this country with Nick Kershaw, great musician. And uh, I just thought Hold Your Fire was fantastic. So I then went back and then went forward and then saw them on the Roll the Bones tour. Yeah, it was a great evening in, uh, at Wembley Arena, which is not too far. And uh, that was great, but it's the only time I've seen them. But I'm, I'm hoping that maybe there'll be a, a renaissance, even as a two-piece plus. Who knows? But I, I hear them most days now. But I'm a yeah, absolutely love their music. They're brilliant. And were you already playing music by this time when you first heard them? Yeah. So I was sent to piano lessons when I was four, and I was useless. And uh, <laughs> I, I had a teacher. She was lovely. But I just didn't make any any real progress because basically I think it was just being lazy. And then when I was about 10, there was a teacher who came to my school who was just incredibly inspirational. So I was playing the piano, I was playing the drums, and then I got a music scholarship to that school, which, you know, that's where I heard Xanadu and Moving Pictures and played in bands, played in sort of various proggy type of bands. And then won a place to the Royal Academy of Music. So there's there's quite a few music colleges in London. There's a real, real hub of culture. And I went to the academy and then um, started composing and then also became a teacher, but have written music for about, I don't know, over 200 audiobooks scores. So I have a studio here and that's what I do. And uh, as well as teaching, which is fantastic, teach some <laughs> at the Royal College, some very, very talented young people, which is great. And uh yeah, but my music has always been in the family. You know, my mother was a musician. My grandmother was a musician. So, yeah, it's, it's always been there. She was an opera singer, so there was sort of lots of guys singing opera downstairs, and I couldn't get to sleep. So, and then I think one day we had some opera played at school, and the teacher said, you'll never have heard anything like this before. And I was thinking, well, I hear it every day, you know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, but I was a big fan of prog and uh, obviously classical music and and i think that that rush sort of straddled both of those really and and also great beautifully produced sort of pop stuff as well and you know the production values of russia 
just magnificent, really. Yeah, you know, I always talk to people who are casual Rush fans, and they always refer to Rush as a prog band. And I know the lines can get blurry when it comes to the definitions of, you know, musical genres. But for me, you know, Rush stopped really being a prog band, probably hemispheres, right? They were more of a rock band who did, you know, odd time signatures and things like that. But I think the, the proggy stuff is left behind. Do you agree with that or no? Well, this is where their kind of genius kicks in because, yeah, I'd agree with you. But then you look at, or even uh, what you might think of as one of their more sort of, I, don't, I would never call them pop, but more accessible albums, shorter songs, I, I guess. And they're throwing in seven, eight time signatures and 15, four and all this sort of stuff. It's always there. And the sort of counter melodies going against each other. And, and even in this song we're going to talk about today, there's so much depth to it and thought. You know, we know the music's great. We know the lyrics are great. But the amount of thought that must go into what they do is stunning. And I, I think there is something truly kind of progressive within all of their music right up to the last recording i'd say what would you say the the definition then of progressive music is prog music well it, it, it depends prog is it's always been thought of as you say as kind of strange time signatures and long pieces but what they've done is something slightly more modern and, and uh maybe pushing forward those barriers really and saying look you can have that within a very accessible context you can have a song like you were talking about it recently, you know, Turn the Page or any of these things, you know, something from that album. It's very unusual for them to just have a 4-4, four, four, a song just in 4-4. Four, four. It just, that's something they don't normally do. There's always a little twist if, in their chordings. Then, yeah, they, they'll use power chords, but they'll always stick an inversion in or they'll do it slightly differently in the second verse or they'll put a counter melody. That's the way they are, you know, and that's, that's why they're probably so loved by real crossover of of musicians and maybe, you know, those who just love music. So as a music educator, Ian, I found it somewhat surprising that chain lightning is the song you wanted to discuss today. Why do you love this song so much? Why did you find it surprising? That's great. Just because it seems to be Jerry, what do you think an obscure rush song to pick? Right. Don't you think it seems to me an obscure rush song to pick from, uh, you know, a late eighties, entry um usually if you would you think you know people always do their their top rush songs it usually seems to lean you know 83 84 and before so something from presto i thought was when steve told me you wanted to talk about chain lightning i just said chain lightning that's amazing <laughs> who is this guy why are we having on our show so before we break this song down guys why don't we take a listen to chain lightning
why don't we start by talking about Presto? What is it about Presto that you love so much? Do you like the production of Presto versus other albums? Actually, I always think they're beautifully recorded and I love all of that. I don't think it's their nicest sounding album as a production. And if you put it on next to something like Signals and hear how warm those sounds are and how warm the whole thing sounds, this is, a, to me, a slightly thinner sound. And it's not my favourite album by Rush, but I think it's a very important album. And I think the quality of the songwriting is obviously wonderful and production and playing it. Well, the production, not so great, as I've said, but the playing. Yeah, I think this is an underrated song on an underrated album. And it's important. It's also a transitionary track on a transitionary album. And just to sort of explain that, I suppose we come back to the lyrics, first of all, and it's we're talking about sort of the cosmic, aren't we? I mean, you've got all this stuff about, uh, well, it, isn't it about Neil Peart and his daughter being on a boat and looking up at all these incredible things going on in the sky? I think so. Right. Uh, like a meteor shower, I believe is the story. Yeah, this is cosmic, isn't it? It's, yeah. This is big vistas they're talking about. And these, this whole idea of these sun dogs. And... I suppose when I'd listened to Hold Your Fire and then the albums just before that, they had this lovely, huge sound. And the way they tend to voice their chords is quite important here because you've got this large expanse. We're talking about things in the sky. We're talking about constant motion. You're talking about all these other things. The words are obviously wonderful. And uh, so you've got these chords. It starts in E flat and then F and then G minor which is fine, you can do it like that, but they voice things really, really cleverly. So in the top part, you get this. So it's an open chord without a major or a minor, which makes it sound really open. If I put the major in it, or minor, just take it out, it's quite an open sound. And they put the third lower down, so you get this lovely, and then again, it's much nicer. And then this chord of F over E flat. They're lovely chords, which sort of opens the whole thing up. Um, I mean, I'm, they don't use that sound particularly, but it sounds pretty good. And then you, they sort of add strings to that. So I'm just going to sort of gradually uh, add things here. Sorry, I'm doing a bit of bit of muting. So if I suddenly go off, just just say, okay. So here we go. Th then they add a few sort of strings and stuff like that. So if I sort of play this. Let's see, let's see how this sounds. So you've sort of got that sound and the strings sort of make it even more, I don't know, in the distance and something really nice, but it needs to be pushed on. So uh, we've got a little bass part going on here. It, this is not a bass, by the way, so <laughs> all bass players, don't, don't write in. So that's just kicking along. Okay, and then as well as that, there's some quite nice things. I, I mean, this is just a kind of synth idea of it. But as well as that, you've got these sort of chords going on here, which I've, which I've put in. Just have a little listen to this. And I, it's sort of trying to approximate what Alex does. So 
you get that kind of idea and it's just really big but then obviously we need the drums so uh and the drums are sort of he's kicking away on the bass bass drum maybe he's got double bass drum pedals for this i don't know so if we just put everything together it sounds a bit like this Now this bit uh, that goes on yet. Yeah, sorry, I feel like I'm giving a lecture here. Oh, no, it's great! Up. Come on, yeah, I love it. Well, the next bit's really interesting because I almost feel why this is a transitionary song is because we've had all the synths for the last four albums, I, I guess, and Alex has been working so beautifully with those synths. That guitar and the way they sort of melt together is great. But this is almost like saying, okay. That was that. I am now back. Since be gone, or you're going to go back in the, the the background of everything, and now I'm going to be at the front here, and um, it's a great moment. So you get that kind of this this sort of little idea here, which sort of goes. Da, da, da. Um, I'm just going to get the sound up. Now this is a really interesting thing that he's playing. We've been talking about open fifths, which again he's got this which is like a power chord, but he goes like this. Now this is interesting because it gives real edge to it and it's got a thing called the tritone. The tritone is like this. And that's always kind of had some sort of traditional connotations of being a little bit evil and a little bit uh, scary. <laughs> it does sound evil. I was thinking that. I'm like, man, that's nasty sounding. Well, that's interesting because they've used it before. And if we go back a few just back to moving pictures, they've actually used the tritone before on the track Witch Hunt. So you've got the same thing there. Wow. Now, if you just take that Witch Hunt motif and go, and then just speed it up. And there you've got the motif for uh, Chain Lightning. It also reminds me of Jesus Christ Superstar when you're playing it. <laughs> <laughs> it's also um, West Side Story, Maria. Wow. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe Rush had something to do with West Side Story. Who knows? <laughs> but, so, but it's great. It, it was sort of called The Devil's Interval. And then these sort of cultural connotations, are sli it's slightly dissonant. And yeah, so that, that works really, really nicely. And then they're sort of rocking out doing this. And you had this wonderful bass player on recently talking about Hold the Page. Uh, and I'm really sorry, I've forgotten his name. It's wonderful. From Why, Why Not? Oh, Tim. Yes. Yeah, amazing. Yeah. And he was talking about using, sort of playing chords on the bass. And you've got this sort of idea. And again, it comes back there. So they were doing that in... Um, hold the page so that's going on as well and everything's just really sort of crashing along and so it, this is a combination really between i think this is why this is a transitionary track you've got this real sort of rocking out guitar stuff which we'd hear much more in the later albums the albums that followed this but then when they get to the sun dogs bit we're sort of back to the to the sort of rather nice <laughs> like that kind of thing but um 
it's quite interesting. The other thing they do as well is to do, I think there's something in this, and you'll know more about the lyrics, but there's a thing about sort of perpetual motion in this, that things just keep spinning, you know, everything in the world keeps going. And, you know, the other thing about that little motif is that because it's in four, you're in four in a bar, one, two, three, four, and there's only three notes in the motif, a different note gets the emphasis every bar. So you get one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two. So each one uh-huh. will be different each time. There's this kind of spinning thing. So there's a real, for me, there's a real connection between what's in the music and what's in the lyrics. And, you know, again, it comes down to their extraordinary musical and artistic abilities. But... Um, yeah, really good. The last thing I was just going to say was that obviously it has a reversed guitar solo by Alex where they've just literally turned the audio back and it's almost like him saying, okay, that was me out there in the last four albums. Right, you can just reverse all that now. I'm here. Oh, that's an interesting. You know, thinking about the solo, because I had mentioned the solo is one of my favorites when we did uh, an episode on our favorite Alex's solo. Yeah. And how do you record a solo to be played backwards. Do you literally have to write it? No. From the end to the beginning and then just play it? No, it's really, really easy because then it would have been very different. If you want to do it now in any of the sort of digital audio workstations that you have on a computer, it's really, really easy. All you do is you just play something in. So you play your guitar solo in and then you click a couple of buttons and it reverses it. And you literally see the sound waves turning around the other way. So if you think of them, when you hit a note on the guitar, it's loudest when you hit it and then it decays away. So instead of going, um, you, go, you get these sort of, sort of weird waves of sound coming forward at you. So to do it on a modern digital audio workstation is, is just really easy. When they did it there, I don't know what the production tricks were, but they, they would have had to literally reverse a tape, uh, I would have thought. Yeah, they would have done then in 1989. So that would have been difficult. What about writing it, though? You have to take into account, it must sound, you think it sounds strange when it's written because it sounds relatively normal when it's played backwards? Do you know, I think what would have happened, and again, if I'm wrong, I stand corrected, but I bet he did a wonderful solo. And then they said, why don't we just turn that backwards? Because this whole thing is about going backwards and forwards. And then we're like, yeah, that's cool. Because just before that solo, You've got this little sort of thing. Yeah. They sort of play that as a band, which is sort of going backwards and forwards. So I'm wondering if that's part of it as well. They maybe thought that, but yeah, it sounds to me like a really happy accident. And Getty's bass line during that solo is so funky and just fits so perfectly with it. It's amazing. Uh, Yeah, amazing. Yeah, and, and that guy you have playing, I mean, it's so lovely that this thing starts with bass, your your podcast, you know, you've got this really, really cool thing with this guy, Lex. Yeah, and he's great. he's an amazing player. Wow, he's really <laughs> good. So, um, yeah, it's a lovely start. And then you, you sort of, you're, you're highlighting just how great the bass lines are in some way, which is so important because, well, all three of them, they're just all 
it's amazing that it works so well because very often when you've got three technically and musically gifted people like that they tend to sort of get in each other's way musically but that's another sign of their genius i think the thing that i love the most about what you just did there ian is when you played that sun dog section it is so beautiful and it fits the lyrics so perfectly how does rush do that how do they match the music so perfectly to the lyrics every single time it's it's incredible to me well, if it's something that we knew how to do, we'd all be doing it, wouldn't we? <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be living in mansions now. <laughs> yeah, they're just they're just incredibly well versed and just intuitive musicians. You know, there's something way beyond what can be taught. They've they've gone on this journey, um, and of course, the other thing. I mean, you, you'll have read Neil Peart's wonderful books, the sort of Ghost Rider thing, and I I read that uh, amazing book. But the cover of that is this wonderfully, there's the road going on and these sort of mountainous regions and things on a very, very grand and wondrous scale. And I feel there's a connection between that and what's the sentiment behind this song and the music within it. I know it's a, it's a song which people don't really know. They maybe go on to the next song after this, but for me, it's that last time okay, the synths are here, but you're going to be challenged now. And on the second half of this album of Presto, yeah, there's keyboards, but they're mainly piano. So in Available Light and Anagram and those sort of tracks, the piano is then kind of the, the, the main thing. That's, that's an interesting, I've, I've never thought of it that way. And this is Alex saying, let's just move on. <laughs> <laughs> that was fun. Let's move on. What about the juxtaposition of that beautiful Sundogs part and then the the Alex, what'd you call it? Was it a triad or something like that? Just how evil that sounds. The difference between the beauty of that one section and the evil tone of what Alex did and melding those into one song, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? It's great. And they've, I think harmonically it works so well as well because there is a relationship between the two two keys so you've got G minor and then which then just falls down and it sort of relaxes into that you know that chord again so which is E flat but let's play it in a rush way you know I could, you could play like that not so nice and then this chord is lovely as well they're just the way they take chords and the way they voice chords, voicing is really, really important. Yeah, amazing. Now, lyrically, I always like to get into the lyrics. To me, this song, you know, is about the spread of just energy, how energy can't be created or destroyed. But it's also that energy just isn't, you know, in stars and stuff like that. It's, it's in relationships with people because he's feeling inspired by seeing his daughter being inspired by the celestial objects above her how you mentioned briefly that that kind of awe comes into the the music so how how was that can you get more into that like how the lyrics really are reflected in the music and vice versa well as i said at the beginning you know there's this i suppose there's this whole idea of the cosmic and how it relates to the music is sort of how i say it i suppose it's it's something that you've got these 
the chords, the way they're voiced, you know, you, they're, they're big, big sounds and they're, you know, every, everything is sitting together very nicely, but it's a grand sound. But again, there is a kind of melancholy as well in some of it. Having read Neil Peart's book, there's a real, the humanity of the man dealing with tragedy at that time. And of course, this tragedy, these tragedies hadn't happened. But I think even then, he's an incredible thinker. And the music itself has a power, but also a melancholy in it, in the way that it goes. It's powerful, but there is a melancholy in those, in those harmonies um, and, the way, and, and those changes that they do. But maybe it's uh, the whole song is, and I don't know if you agree, but lyrically, it, and I, I'm not a, uh, in, in any way an expert on this, but it's a kind of juxtaposition of, of humanity and something sort of beyond humanity. And that the, the sort of earthiness of the guitar sections, and then this great spread of the more celestial sections. So maybe that's how they do it. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Because he's talking about different things, but also like he's talking about these celestial things, sun dogs and meteor showers, but always brings it back to the personal. And it's not really any different. The, the energy between people, like I said, and the energy and the stars is transferred from one state to another and from one person to another. So I think Neil has a, a great grasp, I think, on relating personal feelings to larger feelings. And I think this is one of the songs where it definitely comes across. Yeah, he's a master lyricist as well as a master musician. I mean, he was an extraordinary person you know to have a talent like that to be able to play the drums like that to be able to write lyrics as well you know and he just yeah very special i may have read this on the previous episode where we talked about presto jared i thought it would be good to read it again this is from i don't remember it so <laughs> this is from uh, the profiled cd that came out when presto was released atlantic records released a cd called profile that had an interview with Neil Peart, and he says, I'm a weather fanatic. One night I was watching the weather report, and there are two incidents in the song that are synchronicity to one weather report, where the weatherman showed a picture of sun dogs and described them, and there are two little points of light that appear at sunset, often in the winter when the sky is clear and crystalline, and they are like little prisms, and they sit about 10 degrees north and south of the setting sun, and they are just beautiful little diamonds of light, and oftentimes there's a circle of light, one line that connects them. So they're a really beautiful, natural phenomenon. And I love the name too. Sun Dogs has a great sound to it. And in that same weather forecast, the weatherman announced a meteor shower that night. And so my daughter and I went out on the lake in the middle of the night and watched this meteor shower. So the whole idea of the song was response and how people respond to things. And it's a thing I found a lot in traveling around the world too. It's not enough just to travel and see things. You have to respond to them. You have to feel them. And a lot of the thrust of that song is how things are transferred, like chain lightning or enthusiasm or energy or love are things that are contagious. And if someone feels them, they're easily transferable to another person. I think that's, that's just amazing and sums it up perfectly. Yeah, you should have read that before I asked the question, Steve, because it's exactly what I wanted to say. <laughs> and just how Rush just takes that idea 
and Neil's lyrics and just matches it perfectly. Like I said before to the music that you so brilliantly showed us Ian. it's just amazing to me. I, I think it's a great song and um, maybe a bit overlooked, but uh, yeah, hopefully some people will go back and listen again to it. I always loved it. Ian, you had mentioned you wanted to uh, talk about a couple of other Rush songs that interested oh. you. You said uh, Mission was one that was a favorite of yours. What are your thoughts on Mission? Well, they, you've had some amazing guests coming on talking about that, and I don't want to just repeat what they said. But in a way, it's that lovely, huge sound that they get and all those things that I think we've been mentioning, amazing sort of time signatures. It's incredibly intricate, but it all just sits down so well and it's powerful. The words are wonderful. The bass line, I mean, the bass line of, of Mission Again, and you've got a bit in the middle when it, there's a bit that sounds like either a, a marimba or a, a xylophone playing, which sort of goes, digga, 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 mm -hmm. digga, 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 digga. It's sort of with some incredible snare drum work going. And we haven't heard that thing before at all. It's suddenly just a new idea. And then they get into this lovely relaxing sort of bit with uh, its cold comfort and all that. Amazing. That whole album is is wonderful, but that track is a standout. And I love Time Stand Still and, uh, you know, Turn the Page. Um, I really like the piano sound in um, Second Nature as well. I think that's lovely the way it starts. They've got a nice big sound there. But the whole thing is great. Lovely album. Do you have a favorite era of Rush, Ian? Is the 80s your favorite Rush era, or is it the 70s or sooner? Yeah, you got me. <laughs> no, well, I love all of it, but I think, yeah, if I had to take those albums in the 80s, yeah, it's just such a lovely sound. But that's not to say that the other albums aren't wonderful too, you know. Recently been listening to Hemispheres a lot, and you know, that's just like a that's like a greatest hits album as well. <laughs> <laughs> They're all greatest hits albums, right? <laughs> they all are. <laughs> you know, one more thing I wanted to mention about Chain Lightning is the ending where they do that pitch down, that's nice. What do you think <laughs> yeah. of that? Yeah, well there's the thing. Um <laughs> what do you, what do you say about that? Well, um <laughs> I don't know what the story is about that, but they now you can do it. In fact, I'm going to try and do it now. I'm going to get a pitch shifter on my voice. Let's try this. That's, nice. <laughs> well, that's, that's a little low. <laughs> Let's try this one. That's nice. There you, there go. you go. How's that? Yeah. <laughs> Again, you can do these things. I don't know how they did it. Who is it speaking there? I'm going to guess that it's neil but it could be alex too i don't think it's getty yeah i would have said neil too i, I don't know why i would have said it it's just part of their playfulness isn't it they're a really playful band you know they mm -hmm. i love the sort of mucking around that goes on as well when i first heard that i thought oh, that's an interesting ending. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little interesting addendum so what we just heard from you ian could that possibly be one of your lectures at school i mean would you talk about chain lightning with your students Definitely. Talk about anything. You know, I think it's really important. And, and the stuff that we we do, you know, I'll give a lecture on anything, whether we're talking about uh, Stravinsky or Alban Berg or Rush or uh, any of these things. It's really important. Uh, Pat Metheny, the uh, amazing guitarist, we've uh, looked at him. But yeah, anything. And I think uh, the, the kind of view of these places is they've always been it's only classical music but the, these are the amazing thinkers who are there who uh 
myself excluded very much but but yeah every music jazz and everything is very very much celebrated and particularly also in the curriculum in schools now you know like everything is done i remember at school i was sort of getting in trouble for being in a band and this sort of thing and it was you don't do stuff like that but now it's absolutely the most encouraged thing and and it should be and how about your podcast ian we mentioned it at the top tell us about your podcast where you got the idea and the amazing people you're talking to. So Politics of Sound, it sort of came to me in a, in a I'm not going to say it came in a dream, but I woke up one, one night in the middle of the night and thought, because I'm quite interested in, in politics, and I think the characters are the politicians more sometimes than the politics. And um, obviously all these politicians get asked, you know, about their fiscal policy and all this. I was thinking, I don't want to hear about this. I want to, what are your three favorite albums? Let's talk about the things that matter here. You know, what are you doing? So, um, yeah, it just went straight downstairs and got these sort of string quartet thing going uh, in the middle of the night and just wrote a little, a little theme tune sting thing and uh, got in touch with a few people and found that within Parliament, there were loads of these, these guys, these MPs, who wanted to talk about themselves and wanted to talk about, you know, their favorite music, what's not to like. And then got together with a, a great guitarist, uh, Jeff Sprackling, who it was played in various bands, really, really good player. And uh, so I did all the sort of drums and, and keyboard tracks and he would do all the guitar tracks. And then I, we would just sort of send files to each other. And then they would tell us beforehand what the three albums were going to be. So we had this sort of politics of sound band going on. And um, we've done about 30 or 40 of them. And uh, it's taking a break after season one, but it will be coming back. But yeah, great fun. And, and occasionally we've had a few scoops where people have said things in a relaxed way and probably said more than they wanted to. So it ended up in the papers, <laughs> which was quite funny. <laughs> it's good publicity for the show. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. One of them sort of told me all about her marital status. You know, I think she picked something by Fleetwood Mac and then said, this is the oh, divorce album and I'm leaving my husband and blah, blah, blah. And I just presumed this was common knowledge and it wasn't. Wow. So suddenly it was all over the papers. So yeah, that was great. Well, now that Boris Johnson has a lot of free time on his hands, uh, what about him for the podcast? I think that'd be great. Well, indeed. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, he's an interesting character. There's been some fairly interesting things going on here. But um, yeah, I have to say it was quite good we took a break because one of the things I wanted to do, I really didn't like the way that people were being incredibly unpleasant about politicians and thought, well, look, these are just guys doing their, their job and you should, you know, let's try and show them in a different light. But in, in the sort of midst of Partygate and all the rest of it, it was sort of maybe a bit more of a challenge to show that. But it will rise again, I hope. Have you noticed a correlation between a person's political leanings and the type of music that they listen to? Not really. Um, there was a guy who I thought was going to be quite difficult and he's got pretty strong views on things. And he picked one of his own albums, which I thought was quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> but the best thing for me is, is when these guys actually say, actually, I play the guitar and I sing and some of them have sort of brought guitars along and all this sort of stuff. And they've sort of sung and I've sort of accompanied them and we've done stuff. And then that, I think that's when, when it really gets interesting. So the first half is like a sort of on the psychiatrist couch. And the second half is like, a, you know, let's, let's talk about your album collection. That's, you know, which is fun. Now, if you were a guest on your own podcast, Ian, 
what are the three oh, albums no. you would pick? <laughs> I really hoped you weren't going to answer that. <laughs> um, that's a terrible... Well, if I was to give you something now, then I think uh, it would probably change next week. I think there's definitely an album by the American guitarist Pat Metheny, which would have to be there, which is um, a 1992 release called Secret Story. And if you like the kind of beautifully voiced chords and the sort of things we've been talking about today, then you'd love that. And that's incredible. That's done with him and an amazing band and a London orchestra and they've got kind of choirs in it. And it's just really incredible, incredible. And that stayed with me, that album, for a long, long time. Uh, and a, probably a really good recording of Bach's B minor, B minor Mass, which is in, a sort of life-affirming piece, quite long, about two hours. As for the third one, wow, who knows? Um, yeah, maybe uh, maybe Hold Your Fire. I don't know. I love that album. Go. But uh, yeah, it's got oh, to be that. Or I, there's still other ones. I mean, I, I, I love Power Windows, you know, that, that beginning of that album. And there's not a bad track on that either. Narrowing things down to three is a, is a is a little hard. Yeah, I've been told off by some of my guests. This is very unfair. I want twelve albums, all of mine. Right? Yeah, all self-recorded. <laughs> Ian, thanks so much for joining us today on the Rush Fancast and teaching us all about Chain Lightning. It was fascinating, and I love the song even more now that you've told us all about it. Thanks so much. It's been such fun. Thanks, guys. Cheers. So, Joe, you've heard of Masterclass, right? Yes, I have a subscription to Masterclass. Do you really? I do. Well, you just got a Masterclass in Chain Lightning. How amazing <laughs> was <true>. that? <laughs> Maybe there should be Masterclasses that focus on one song. Sort of like Song Exploder, but, you know, a slightly different thing. Yeah, you know, Ian could just do Masterclasses on Rush. Yeah. I'd sign up for that. Yeah, I'd sign up for that, too. I mean, I'm already signed up. I would watch that. <laughs> or when we're finished with the podcast, Ian could just take over. What do you think? Yeah, sure. Would it be sort of like a franchise opportunity where he would just pay us and continue the podcast? Speaking of getting paid, do you know that Gene Simmons' idea for KISS is to continue KISS forever with different members <laughs> in the makeup other than he and Paul? I didn't know that. And... I hate that idea. Um, <laughs> at that point, what's the difference between that and a cover band? There is no difference, but Gene's getting paid. Oh, this would be after he can no longer fit into the leather, not after he dies. No more Gene. It would be other people, and Gene and his heirs, I guess, would uh, continue the money flow forever, which is wow, right up Kiss's alley, right? Yeah, really. <laughs> I mean, when I guess if you if you have a Kiss coffin. No money-making ideas off the table. That is true. That is true. You can find us on Twitter. We are at RushFanCast. Instagram, find us at TheRushCast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our conversation with Ian Carnegie at TheRushCast at gmail.com. Lex did the bass intro and outro. Of course he did Chain Lightning, Jer. Of course he did. Of course he did. I'm sure everyone recognized it right away. Right away. And I bet we're going to recognize the quote from a similar song right away. <laughs> It is a very similar song. Some might say the exact same song. Sun dogs fire on the horizon, meteor rain, stars across the night. This moment may be brief, but it can be so bright, reflected in another source of light. When the moment dies, the spark still flies, 
reflected in another pair of eyes. Such an underrated Rush song. Thanks, Jer. See you later.